Turn our Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. For those using the black Bibles in the seats around you, Matthew 5, the section we'll look at, be page 810. Page 810. Today's passage that I'm about to read will discuss issues in some that will relate to adultery, lust, self-mutilation, and burning in hell. Did I welcome the visitors yet? If not, welcome. Glad you're here today and you decided today would be the day you would come to Embassy Church. If you're wondering, does this church normally speak about adultery, lust, self-mutilation, and burning in hell? The answer is no, but only so often as a book of the Bible brings it up. This is our practice. We work through just sections of the Bible, particularly books or maybe sections like chapters, and just work through them and see what they have to say to us because we believe God's word is good, all of it, and we want to see all that it has for us in every part. The last time I was in a church service and this scripture was being preached, it changed the direction of my life and brings me to this stage and pulpit in this church today. I don't want to over-exaggerate it as if it was like the greatest sermon ever. In fact, it's the exact opposite. It was by hearing such a difficult message to hear, and I mean difficult meaning as an aspiring preacher. The last time I heard this, I was working at a church, and a pastor preached this message as he was going through the Sermon on the Mount, and I don't know if I was angry but I probably was a little upset. I have told this story a number of times, so some of you may have heard this before, but when I heard this text of scripture preached, the sermon title was 10 Tips for Pure Living in Tempting Times. 10 Tips for Pure Living in Tempting Times. What's, what's, what's the big deal with that, Pastor Phil? Why would that get you all upset? That sounds, that sounds good. In fact, one person after the message, as I was talking with them, said, that sermon might have been the greatest message I've ever heard on a very difficult topic and subject. And at that point, it made me want to scream. It made me want to shake the person and say, no, the sermon missed it. And I realized that not only did this pastor make a mistake as he preached the text, but I realized in my own life, and this is why the direction of my life forever changed after that day. And, and there was a culmination of things. I'm going to share a little bit of this autobiographical, here we are today, in part because of the things God was stirring in me to that moment, hear that message and say, I, God, want to be a pastor who preaches the gospel of Jesus Christ every week and does not just give tips for Christian living or principles for how to be a more moral person. But God, would you so allow me to start a new church and may the, Jesus, the gospel of Jesus Christ be the center of every message. So let me read this passage and confess that myself, and many other pastors have made many mistakes, and I'd like to walk, them th walk through many of them with you today. Matthew 5, 27 through 30. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin... Tear it out and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Instead of 10 tips for pure living, I'd like to present this morning 10 problems with purity preaching. Ten problems with purity preaching, and I include myself as a pastor who has made several of these problems. Problem number one, preachers have made the failure of underemphasizing the teaching about sexuality 
Problem number one, preachers have made a failure of underemphasizing what the Bible has to say about sex. Does Jesus, in his Sermon on the Mount, leave it out? This is a simple observation. Should be easy for all of us to see. No, he's happy to talk about sexual things. Many pastors and churches do not want to talk about the gift and the beauty of the relations between a man and a woman because it's embarrassing or because they think it's inappropriate. But the Bible is not silent on this issue, so nor should we. We should teach the goodness of this gift in its appropriate context. In the past, as I have taught on it, I have tried to relate this as a fire. Is a fire good or bad? And it's one of those, well, depends on where it is. One of our church members who's sitting in the back row just recently had his whole house burned down because a fire was in the inappropriate place. So we should be freshly reminded that fires are dangerous and powerful, and in the wrong place, they can be very harmful. On the other hand, fires are good. They create warmth and light. And last night, for many hours, I had a fire in my front yard, and it brought community together as we roasted marshmallows. And the fire was good in its contained spot. Jesus does not say sexual desire is wrong in our text, nor does any scripture passage. It is good. God made male and female from the first two pages of scripture to be fruitful and multiply, and it starts with two naked people in a garden and a man singing songs at the end of Genesis chapter 2. Is anyone blushing yet? Song of Solomon will make you blush if you've never read it before, but there's a whole Bible devoted to the love between a man and a woman. We do our church and the world a disservice if we do not say the beautiful and amazing message the Bible has to say about sexuality. That's problem number one. Number two, the failure of overemphasis of particular sins, especially sexual sins. A great problem I have seen in my own life and maybe even in my own teaching is to overemphasize the scarlet letter A that we put on people's heads and foreheads, metaphorically speaking, more often than not. When we read Jesus' teaching, do you, as you read verses 27 through 30 of chapter 5, see it especially emphasized over and against the issue we saw last week in anger? Or does he talk just as severely about the issue of anger there? Or how about when we go into the next section on divorce or oaths or retaliation or loving your enemies or giving to the needy in chapter 6 and so on. This teaching is found in a list of teachings. And there is, without exception, no place in the Bible where you will go and it is just talking about sexuality and not talking about other issues and sins that relate to the ultimate core issue of one's heart. So we do, I think, need to talk about these matters, but in a right way and not too much in such a way where we overemphasize it and we make it seem like this is the big litmus test of your Christianity. If you are faithful in this area, oh, but the others, that's okay. That's more respectable sins, to quote Jerry Bridges in the title of his great book, Respectable Sins. There is no such thing as respectable sins. The world is talking about sexuality all the time, and it is telling us that you should not deny yourself. It is like a natural desire of hunger or thirst. If you're hungry, well, then eat. If you're thirsty, then drink. Jesus does not elevate it and overemphasize it, not as a sin that's the worst sin, nor overemphasize it as something that is like, well, this is the thing. Jesus lived a completely celibate, single life, and I guarantee he was the most fulfilled person that's ever walked this earth. He, he did not miss out. There was no dissatisfaction of living a single life. Singles in the room should take courage to live a life like Jesus and know that you will not miss out if that becomes your lot for your entire life on this earth. Jesus says, I've come to give you life and life to the full. 
And for some of you, that might mean denying what seems to be a desire within you to express yourself in this way. But Jesus will say in Matthew chapter 18 that for the sake of the kingdom of God, some will choose to be celibate. For the sake of the kingdom of God, some will choose to be eunuchs, to be celibate their whole life. And praise God for those brothers and sisters in this room and outside this room, for men like Jesus who live their life not expressing themselves in this way. One of the problems of overemphasizing our sexual desires to seem, well, you need to express it, is that we elevate not only this sin, but that desire in such a way where it misses the complexity and the wholeness of who you are. And in other words, it dehumanizes who you are. You are not a person who is determined and defined by your desires. We are defined and determined by who we are through the gospel, through Jesus, through being image bearers, if you use the language of Genesis 1. One of the better illustrations of this, and almost every time I have a young man or young woman or older man, older woman confess some sort of sexual sin or issue on this matter, I recommend an article, and I will tell you the title of it. You have to pay for it online. I have a, a digital copy if you want me to send it to you, but that might reveal more information than you wanted to reveal. But if you'd like to just Google and purchase an article, it is called Sexual Sin and the Deeper, Wider Battle. Sexual Sin and the Deeper, Wider Battle by David Palson. In this article, I recommend to almost anyone who makes this confession to me that they should read it as one of the first things they think through because we have so overemphasized this sin that it gets no attention and thought to the person that's going through that sin that there's actually other things going on. And the illustration he uses is similar to the movie theater. Right now at the box office, my guess is many of you are well aware of a superhero movie that is being played and winning box office awards for all the people that are going to see it. If you go to a movie theater, there's going to be about you know, 20 different showings of this particular movie. It's called Avengers. My guess is very few of you know that there are movies like Truth and Dare or Beirut or Rampage. There's actually other movies going on in the movie theater is my point. There's not just one show playing. Now, there is a premiere show that's getting a lot of screen time, a lot of advertisement money, and it's getting a lot of attention. And for many people who struggle with this, because of the overemphasis of churches and preachers, this particular sin is like the Avengers movie. It is on the big screen, the IMAX. It is the one that is blaring in our faces. It is the one that everyone is going to see. And it is the one that the only one you're thinking, now if only I could beat this sin, then I would be a holy man or woman. And this, my friends, is an unhelpful way to think about sexual sin. It is a deeper and is a wider battle. It is more than just one movie screen. Your whole heart is the entire movie theater, and there's lots of screens. There are lots of movies playing. There are lots of sin struggles in the heart. We should be weary of giving this too much attention and we should make sure that we help people see that sometimes one of the best ways to fight this sin is not by continuing to feed the attention, but by rather looking at the whole human heart. Number three, a problem that has happened in purity preaching is the failure of using fear. I want to call it fear-mongering. The pastors have used passages like this and essentially said, now boys and girls, ladies and gentlemen, you better listen up to what I'm about to say because if you don't, you're going to burn in hell. Or they might say something like, now do you want to get an STD or have an unplanned pregnancy? Well, then you better make sure you listen up in chapter 5, verses 29 and 30, Jesus is without a doubt using hyperbole to make a point. He is exaggerating that if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. Anyone in the room that's ever struggled with lust, if you cover up one eye, does the problem go away? 
Absolutely not. If you were to get rid of both eyes, does the problem go away? Or the image is still in your head and you could fantasize all day long. This is obviously not the point. The point is not about tips for external behavior modification, as some preachers might say, or fear-mongering to say, well, you better listen up or you're going to go to hell. It is serious. We should be warned. There is something right about the fear of God and the fear of our consequences that should sober us. And so should this passage. We should know that our bodies will be destroyed. You'll become less and less human the more you give yourself over to anger that leads to deep bitterness or lust that leads to adultery. It does destroy marriages, families, and careers. This week, I had an email come in that the class that I'm taking right now for my doctoral work had a a big adjustment because the man who was the premier professor that was going to teach this class had to resign for a moral failure. I have no idea if it was sexual in nature, but the point was still fresh this week as I'm preparing this message to be reminded that, that, that affected me, that affected my plans, that affected other doctoral students who are hoping to have him as the supervisor, that affects his, his marriage, that he had to resign, he lost his, his job. Do you see Jesus' point? There's a trajectory your life is on and one is headed toward destruction. Another one is headed toward life. Which trajectory are you on? This is serious, we should be warned. We shouldn't overdo it in a way that makes people just have our main motivation be the the fear-mongering. Well, I don't don't want to get an STD. A great illustration of this is the the week before I heard the sermon that, that turned the direction of my life. The week before, I was in Minneapolis at a pastor's conference led by Desiring God Ministries, for those of you familiar with that ministry. I'm at a pastor's conference. The whole conference was just oozing with the gospel, about what the gospel was, how to share the gospel. It was all about evangelism and preaching the gospel, cultivating a culture of the gospel. John Piper was one of the speakers, Mark Dever, Matt Chandler. And Matt Chandler, some of you might know, he's got an incredibly fruitful ministry down in the Dallas, Texas area. And he was one of the speakers at this conference. And at one point, he tells the story about when he was a new Christian in Texas And he brought a young lady with him to a Christian event. And the speaker got up and he said, it was was young people. It was a lot of young teenagers and college students. He got up and he he held a rose up, a flower. And he asked that all the students sniff the rose and pass it around. And there's there's hundreds of students in this auditorium. So, So think double, triple the size of this. And he starts doing his talk. And and, and as Matt Chandler explains, it, it just was shameful the way he was handling the text and just scaring kids. Do you want to get pregnant? No. Don't have sex. All kinds of stuff like that. And then lastly, for his punchline, for his final grand conclusion, he says, oh, wait, wait, where's my rose? And then they they bring it forward. And, And by this point, if you could imagine... Hundreds of kids passing around a rose and smelling it. It's, it's mangled. It's, the petals are falling off. It's half broken. And he says, who, who wants the rose? This is what happens if you go sleep around. This, this is what you're going to offer to your husband or your wife. Is this what you want? And Matt Chandler said in front of all these pastors at this pastor's conference, he felt every urge within him not to shout and scream at that man and say, Jesus wants throws. And I remember, I remember hearing those words and the effect, the powerful effect that had for him to just boil inside to say, Jesus does. Jesus wants people like that. Doesn't mean we should live illicitly however we want. We should be fearful of the consequences that God has put. But man, We can overdo this fear-mongering and forget the grace that God gives broken sinners. For those of you who have sinned sexually, Jesus wants messed up roses. Number four, purity preaching has failed to expose idols. I kind of alluded to this earlier, so I'll be brief. The problem with 10 tips for pure living kind of teaching 
gives you the idea that all you need is a few external tips and then you're good to go. At least that's what it communicated to me. It does not communicate that there is a heart problem. The scripture reading read earlier in the service, Matthew chapter 15, where does adultery and sexual immorality and anger and all kinds of evil deeds come from? The problem is not on the outside. You can't just wash your hands and say, well, I'm unclean. It is from the inside. This is the consistent teaching of the New Testament that we need a change in our heart. So therefore, purity preaching has often been so external in its focus and not internal that it has done a disservice. Jesus is clearly talking about the adultery that someone commits in their heart. Did you notice that in chapter 5, verse 28? This is his key idea, that the adultery in the heart is the problem that we should be concerned about. So, friends, do you struggle with pornography or lust? You could get rid of your cell phone, the internet, but that will not get rid of your heart problem. Some of us probably should go from smartphones to flip phones. Some of us probably should monitor or get rid of our internet altogether. We should take severe actions because we heard the warning of Jesus and say, I'm going to be serious about this. But have you asked or been asked or had conversations about why and when and where and what you're thinking before, during, and after those events? Heart-level questions like, have you noticed a pattern that it seems to happen every Friday night when all your friends are hanging out and you feel lonely? And this seems to be the best way to soothe and comfort that loneliness. Have you noticed that you've often had temptations when you've struggled with why God hasn't allowed you to get married? And instead of believing in the goodness of singleness, or rather believing in the goodness of God's plan for you at this point in your life, the impatience, the frustration with God is ultimately this heart problem that is at the core of why you then lash out in this particular expression of sin. How many of us have Sin sexually because we feel like, well, I'm missing out and God's robbing me of true joy and true happiness. Do you not realize that if you press further, and this is what I aim to do every time I have these conversations individually, is if you press far enough, you will ultimately get to the core problem, which is the unbelief of seeing that God is good, that his plans for you are good, and you should be faithful with where he has you at this point of your life. It always boils down to those simple ideas. The ways you get to that point are always different, and it's never simple, quick fix. But at the core, at the core of our hearts is trusting. Do you believe in the goodness of God? Do you believe in the goodness of Jesus' teaching here? Do you think he's robbing you of joy? Or is he trying to protect and promote human flourishing and life? So when we fail to preach the idol of the heart, and really hone in on Jesus' words, that he's wanting to get to the heart of the matter, the spirit of the law, then we do one another a disservice. Number five, purity preaching has failed many times to listen to and honor women. Purity preaching has often failed to listen to and honor the ladies one example of this is many pastors will talk about this as a men-only issue, as if women don't have struggles with lust. That is a failure to listen to women. Some might say, well, notice Jesus does not address women in our text, does he? You've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman, why doesn't he just say a person? Why is it, why is it woman? And so because of that, some preachers of this text have failed to listen to and honor that this is a struggle both for men and women, number one. And number two, that the reason I believe Jesus is calling out men in particular is not because this is a men problem and it's not a woman problem. Well, men are more visual. That may be true, but that does not mean that this is not a male and female issue. But it does mean that there could be something that Jesus is doing that is deeper 
and wider and more beautiful. For example, are you remembering that as this is being taught and read, the culture that Jesus is in is the Middle East? That modesty looks a lot different than it does today in the Middle East? Like here, it looks different here. I mean, in the Middle East, even right now, today, if you go to, to, to Dubai, there are going to be signs on the road, and it says that you will be fined for being too immodestly dressed women. In other words, that there is a higher sense of women should have their heads covered and be completely covered up and, and, and more modest. There, there is a sensitivity, a, a difference, a cultural difference. Knowing this, Jesus could be calling out men in part because of that, but probably more significantly because men regularly oppress and objectify women and use power to seduce them, use physical strength, use money, use marriage, as we'll see in a couple weeks as we look at divorce teaching. Use a vulnerable position that a woman sometimes finds herself in and exploit it for their own personal pleasure. In fact, there is a translation issue in this text. This is one of the reasons I think it's been poorly preached, in this point in particular. When you look back down at verse 28, notice he says, But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. The phrase, looks at a woman with lustful intent, is of debate. There are two possible interpretations. One is the one that's right in front of you, that it's lustfully looking at a woman, which I'll explain in just a moment further. The other is that it is a lust and a flirtatious exchange between a man and a woman where you're trying to seduce a woman. And the reason is because of the way that this grammar is written. And in fact, if you were to read it in its most literal sense, you would read it with the idea that Jesus is saying, men, if you try and engage with a woman with a look or a seductive sort of interaction and you cause her to lust, and that's the debate, is it for him to lust or causing her to lust after you so then you could commit adultery? And there are very good arguments on both sides, and I am not a Greek expert. I'm just making you aware of the situation and letting you know that one of the reasons I bring that up is not just to give you information, but to tell you that I believe one thing Jesus is doing is telling men in a culture where men were already doing plenty of oppressing and objectifying, men, this is not the way we treat women. Sure, women, we should, as ladies in this room, for all of you who are women, you should be responsible not to flaunt and and seduce your beauty and your sexuality. Some of you may be possibly naive to the power that you possess over men by the way you dress. Some of you might be indifferent because you just care about cultural styles. Some of you maybe are just hurting inside and honestly you just want attention and you like it when somebody oohs and ahs and whistles. Ladies, you do have brothers in this room that want to fight for purity and you can do them a great service by the way you dress. However, I do think much of our hopeful intention here is to see that Jesus' teaching protects women, upholds them, views them as higher and more dignified than the current cultural standing of Jesus' day. So it would be doing us a disservice if we do not listen to the needs of our sisters and empower women in the way that Jesus is in these teachings and throughout his ministry. Yes, women were disciples of Jesus. Yes, women were encouraged to sit at his feet in a spot that most women would have said, what is she doing there? That's only a spot for men. Men of embassy, how are we doing then at overcoming our fleshly temptations and taking on the responsibility of not seeing that these ladies around us are for our gratification, whether the ones in this room or elsewhere? And the reason I ask us in particular, and this is not a sermon for those outside of the room, but for us in this room, because this week, a letter came up from a prominent evangelical woman teacher named Beth Moore. She's had a long, long ministry of teaching the Bible and the gospel. And she wrote a letter to men. It says, brothers, my Christian brothers, especially pastors. It's a I know, relatively short letter. But in it, I'm going to read you a segment of it. She says, about a year ago, I had the opportunity to meet a theologian that I had long respected. 
I read virtually every book that he had written. I looked so forward to getting to share a meal with him and talk theology. But the instant I met him, he looked me up and down, smiled approvingly, and said, you are so much better looking than fill in the blank. But he did not leave it blank. He filled it in with the name of another prominent woman Bible teacher. Now, this example may seem fairly benign in light of some of the recent scandals of sexual abuse and assault coming to light, but the attitudes growing from the same dangerously malignant root, many women have experienced horrific abuse within the structures of the Christian world, being a part of shaping misogynistic attitudes, whether or not they result in these criminal behaviors is still sinful and harmful and produces terrible fruit It paints us continually as weak-willed women and seductresses. I think I speak for many of us when I say we are neither interested in reducing or seducing our brothers. It's a short little snippet, brothers. I'd encourage you to read this letter, especially those of you that are pastors, elders, leaders. Is any of this true of us? I think this teaching builds up women, empowers them, sees them as not less secondary, second-class citizens who have no right to give testimony in the court, have no right to vote, etc., etc., but rather as equal image bearers of God that should not be seen as just images for men's pleasure. Number six, purity preaching has often created unnecessary guilt. So this would be the failure of unnecessary guilt. The reason I bring this up is because of the word lust. The word lust here is epimathia. It is a word that means desire. It is not always a negative word. I think today, if you hear the word lust, especially in the church context, you're going to think, oh, that's, that's bad. The word is not bad. The word is a neutral word. It's a word that means strong desire. Jesus uses this word twice in his meal on the Passover, and he says, epimathia doubly intensified, so I lusted, lusted, or I desire, desired, and some of your English translations will say, he earnestly desired. It's like the strongest way you could say, he, he has a strong desire for something. And what this means is that desires are good. Strong desires are even good. Jesus had them as a perfect, sinless human. It is not wrong, then, for you to have desires. So don't be guilty, men or women, if you have sexual desires, non-sexual desires. It is wrong, it is not wrong necessarily to even see a woman immodestly dressed. Don't just say, well, I saw that, I I saw, and so, oh, that's sin, and I got to look away and be real awkward about it. It's not wrong to see naked bodies. It's not wrong to have a lustful thought come into your head randomly and just, Well, where did that come from? It's not wrong to look at somebody else from the opposite sex. That's not wrong. You should not have unnecessary guilt. What is being talked about here is a gaze, a stare. Do you see the difference between the English word I look, looking at someone, and then staring and fantasizing or flirting and seducing? It's one thing to see someone It's another thing to stare and make fantasies in your head. And this, my friends, is sometimes not clearly understood. And because of that, I think sometimes people carry around unnecessary guilt and baggage. And they might be thinking that they are more sinful than they maybe are. So as Martin Luther summarized, I mentioned this maybe a year ago, He says, what Jesus is saying is, you may be not able to prevent a bird from flying over your head. Some of that's normal. You might have natural desires or thoughts come into your head. But all of us can prevent a bird from making a nest in our hair. So which is it? Is it just a glance, a look? You see something? Okay. Then you move on. Or do you not move on and continue thinking about it? This is what we're talking about in terms of a long stare or gaze. Number seven, purity preaching has failed to have clear definitions about the difference between love and lust. 
in kind of an overflow from point six, some of the unnecessary guilt comes out of a misunderstanding of lust. And so a failure to really understand lust and love will lead to all kinds of confusion, and we need to make sure we do not make that mistake. For example, if you were to take 1 Corinthians 13, a well-known passage of Scripture that talks about love, you contrast that with the description Jesus gives here about what lust is. Love is patient. It's the first thing it says. Lust is in a hurry. It is in a rush. It can't wait. It doesn't want to wait for God's timing. It doesn't want to wait for a spouse's timing. I need it now, and so I'm going to do whatever it takes. I'm going to take matters into my own hands. Love is faithful and in it for the long haul. Lust is in it for the short term and only when it feels right or until the high runs out. Love is selfless. Love is about putting the good of another ahead of your own. Lust is selfish. It's about me getting mine. This can happen, my friends, in a sexual relationship between a husband and a wife. There's a way for you to be lustful in a selfish, immediate, I need it now sort of attitude, even to your own spouse. Love is an act of the will, a daily decision to serve and die to yourself with your whole body, mind, soul, and spirit. Lust is about my feelings. It's about falling in love. And I believe when people say that they love each other, too often it is just about lust. I have strong feelings for you. I have desires for you in an intimate way. Some of you have been duped by men who have said, I love you. And that's, they don't mean love, biblical love. They mean is lust. We need to have clear definitions. Number eight. Purity preaching has failed to provide listeners with hope. Some might say, if I'm preaching on Matthew 5, 27 through 30, and I'm preaching the text, I'm just preaching the text. There's not much hope in this. It's just telling you how you should live. And it's better for you to lose one member of your body than your whole body to go into hell. So I'm going to preach that text, and I'm going to make sure that people really feel that. And the reason I say this is because I think too often... We take scriptures out of their broader context. Yeah, that's what that particular text says, but that text is in the Sermon on the Mount, and that text is in a larger book called the Gospel of Matthew, and Matthew has five large teaching sections. And Jesus explains that his main message is not, don't lust. His main message is, the kingdom of heaven is here. Believe the good news. More on that in a second. As one author said, this was a book I was reading during the time right before I heard this sermon that forever kind of changed the alteration of my direction of life from thinking this is the sort of pastor and church I wanted to be at. I was reading this book and I came across this quote. It said, the fundamental problem is the same everywhere. What you hear in churches is laws without the gospel. What you hear if you distill the many words from all the different pastors is always the same. Here is what you should do. You're not doing it. So get out and try harder. This is the three-point sermon of the church today. I sometimes suggest to clergy that they carve over the main door of their church the following words. Abandon all hope, all who enter here. Because if you're looking for comfort and release You better hold that hope until you leave the church, because from the pulpit, what you will get is law and not grace. So I'm reading that book, and I enter into a church, and I hear 10 tips about purity and a tempting time, and all I heard was law, law, law. Not one ounce of hope, not one piece of encouragement. Christian Smith is a man who has spent a long time studying what the religion of America is like. 
And he's done this by surveying many young people, by understanding what young people are hearing from the sermons and teachings that they've been getting. And he came out with this study 10 plus years ago. This is old news from some of you probably. But he coined a phrase and he says, if you dumb down what all people are hearing in churches in America today, it could be summed up with these three words. Moralistic, which means be good, keep your nose clean. Therapeutic, oh, you've got a lot of hurts and pains. Well, here, Jesus can help you with your hurts and pains. And deism, meaning not Jesus, not the God of the Bible, but just a general belief in God will help with your hurts and pains. And yeah, make sure you be a good person so that way you get the help for your anxiety and your struggles with depression and whatever other hurts and struggles and therapy you need. Moralistic, therapeutic deism. And right around this same time I'm reading all these books and going to this conference, I learned about this study and realized this needs to change. Churches need to not just give moral exhortations, therapeutic help, and a broad, general, deistic teaching from the pulpit and singing in our songs, but a Christ-centered message that is clear and explicit and helpful and encouraging. And so I remember one of the poignant parts of this difficult sermon I was sitting through where the pastor came to the side of the pulpit. He leans over. He looks at the men in the face. And he says this. Guys, I know some of you are fooling around on that computer. Cut it out. Stop it. And then he moves on to his next tip. How hopeful is that? You know how many men I have counseled through the years that have addictions to sexual fantasies and pornography and whatever else? Stop it, young man. Just, just stop. Let's just cut it out right now. Let's, let's make today the day. That's the best we can do? Moralistic, therapeutic deism? Number nine. The reason they don't have hope is because they don't have Christ. The failure of purity preaching is the failure of pointing people to Jesus Christ. It's as if we forgot about the one who's speaking these words in Matthew chapter 5 and treating him as an ordinary self-help guru to help you improve yourself a little bit for the next week or month or year. One of the greatest and most impactful messages I've heard on the topic was from John Piper, not at this conference that I was at right before this turning point moment in my life, but listening online to a message that he gave called Sex and the Supremacy of Christ Part 2. He gave two messages at a national conference in 2004. He gave an introductory one in Part 1. It's okay. But Part 2 was excellent. After giving David Powelson's article about sexual sin in the deeper, wider battle, the second most given resource to people struggling with this issue is that message from John Piper. In that message, he exalts in the glories of Jesus and says, sex is just a small little planet. A small little planet in the solar system of your life. When it becomes the sun, because we have overemphasized it and we have made it bigger and grander than what it really is supposed to be, all the planets crash into each other and fly out of orbit because the gravity of the sun is not holding the planets together. So the antidote to problems of lust is not ten tips, but one exalted Savior, who is Lord over all, the Son of the solar system. So, friend, if there's one takeaway, meditate on the glories of Jesus Christ. In my best Piper impersonation, I want to share you a small tidbit of that message. It's the best part of that message, maybe my favorite part of any Piper sermon ever. He says, meditate on the supremacy of his deity who is equal with God the Father in all of his attributes and the radiance of his glory, the exact imprint of his nature, infinite, boundless in all its excellency. 
Consider the supremacy of his eternality that makes the mind of a man explode with unsearchable thought that Christ never had a beginning, but simply always was sheer, absolute reality while all universe around us is fragile and contingent like a shadow by comparison of his all-defining, ever-existing substance. Consider the supremacy of his never-changing constancy with all of his virtue and character and commitments. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Consider the supremacy of his knowledge that makes the Library of Congress look like a matchbox and all of the information on the internet look like a 1940s farmer's almanac. And quantum physics and everything that Stephen Hawking ever dreams seem like a first-grade reader. Consider the supremacy of his wisdom that has never been perplexed by any complication and can never be counseled by the wisest of men. Consider the supremacy of his authority over heaven and earth and hell without whose permission no man or demon can ever move a square inch, who changes times and seasons, removes kings and sets up kings, and does everything according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the habitants of the earth, so that no one can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? Consider the supremacy of his providence without which a single bird falls to the ground in the furthest reaches of the Amazon forest, or a single hair of any head turned black or white. Consider the supremacy of his word. The moment-by-moment moment upholding of the universe, every molecule and atom and subatomic world that we have never even dreamed of, consider the supremacy of Christ's power to walk on water and cleanse lepers and heal the lame and open the eyes of the blind and cause the deaf to hear and storms to cease and the dead to raise with a single word or even a thought. Consider the supremacy of his purity, never to sin, or to have one millisecond of a bad attitude or an evil, lustful thought. Consider the supremacy of his trustworthiness, never to break his word or let one promise fall to the ground. The supremacy of his justice to render in due time all moral accounts in the universe settled either on the cross or in hell. The supremacy of his patience to endure the dullness for decade after decade and hold back his final judgment on this land and on the world that we might have opportunity to repent. Would you consider this morning the supremacy of his sovereign servant obedience to keep the Father's commandments perfectly and embrace the excruciating pain of the cross willingly? Consider the supremacy of his meekness and lowliness and tenderness that will not break a bruised reed or quench a smoldering wick. I could go on. Piper does. He is supreme and admirable in every way over all things from the top of Mount Everest, 29,000 feet up to the bottom of the Pacific Ocean, 36,000 feet down in the Mariana Trench. He's supreme over all plants and animals, from the peaceful blue whale to the microscopic killer viruses. He's supreme over all businesses and finance and industry and manufacturing and transportation and education and universities and scholarship and science and research and all of the internet and all information systems. And I'm still skipping parts. He keeps going and concludes, as Abraham Kuyper once said, there is not a single square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. He rules with absolute supremacy over it all. And when you behold Jesus Christ like that, sex just floats as a planet, as just one aspect of your life and not this center sun. Jesus becomes the center. Tenth and finally, the great problem of purity preaching is the failure to preach the gospel. 
The context of Matthew 5 and 7 is after the declaration of chapter 4, verse 17 and 23, that Jesus is an announcer of the kingdom of God that declares good news. To forget that Jesus' main message is summarized as gospel good news and then just harp on some of the commands in chapters 5, 6, and 7 does all of our hearers and readers a disservice. And so the main reason I left feeling discouraged and empty and struggling that day was because I did not hear about the promise of forgiveness. I asked myself, what do we say to the people who have sinned and the tips didn't work? I didn't hear anything about the regenerating power, regenerating power of new life given by the Holy Spirit to cause you to walk according to his ways. I was not encouraged to know that that's what Jesus came to do, was to start a whole new creation that begins with his resurrection and goes into your heart by the gift of the Holy Spirit. I didn't hear anything about our identity in Jesus Christ. The passage that was read earlier, that you were once those things, you once were defined by sexual sin, you once were adulterers and immoral. But 1 Corinthians 6:11, as it was read earlier, needs to be reminded to us again and again. That is what you once were, but you no longer are. You are washed, you are sanctified, you are justified by the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. Struggling sinner and saints, there is good news for those of us who have read these commands and said, my heart has all kinds of wickedness in it. So know the supremacy of Jesus as the center of your life and as the one who preaches good news. Let's pray together. Our Father, we want to give you thanks now for the gospel of Jesus Christ, and I pray that this pulpit, no matter who is standing here, I pray that it would be preached boldly and passionately. It would not just be a side footnote to our worship service, but the main course of our meal as we gather each week. I pray, God, that you would raise up men and women in this room who have victory over sin, not because of tips per se, but primarily because of a power within them through the gift of God's Spirit, changing hearts, stirring affections. Seeing how much grander and glorious the bright light of the Son of Jesus Christ is compared to the street lights on the corner. God, I pray that we would see that the temptations we have are impatient, are so misguided so misunderstood. I pray that you'd help all of us to realize that you are so, so good. Your ways are good. Your commands are good. They, they give us life. So this and much, much more, would you use the words that have been spoken and would use them right now as we meditate on your death for us. In Jesus' name, amen.